Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for Black women by Black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as Black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal, and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. have anxiety too. My name is Ashley. I'm your host. If you're new, welcome to the podcast. If you are a if you're a returning listener, like shout out to you. I appreciate y'all coming back. Uh, today we have we have an interesting episode. I'm I'm really excited. We have a guest and her name is really easy to remember because it's it's the same as mine, spelled the same and everything. Today we have Ashley Farish on the podcast. Welcome, Ashley. Hello. Hey. Maybe we should call ourselves Ashley Squared for the Ashley Squared. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I <podcast>. like that. <laughs> it's funny because your last name starts with an F, mine starts with a G, so it's like you know consecutive. See? Yep. Yeah. I like it. We're on the same page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm really excited to talk to Ashley because. Well, let me give you a little background on her. So she's a therapist. Uh, she's based in Akron, Ohio right now. Um, are you a Cleveland uh, Cavs fan? Oh, I don't. I don't. I mean, I loved when we won the championship. But other than that, I don't really watch anything. But don't sure, really care I'll about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Ashley has been working for more than a decade to help those who've ex- who have experienced trauma recover from their experiences and live with more joy. So a really interesting way that Ashley uses different practices to help heal trauma. And that is something we are going to get into today. I can tell you this much that we haven't talked about this on the podcast before. So I'm always excited to do an episode, but I'm super excited for this episode because it's something I don't know much about. And I don't think it's something that is talked about very often. So before we get into it, y'all know we have to stop and do a little icebreaker. Yes, I'm going to find out a new name for icebreaker so it doesn't sound like you're in a corporate meeting. Um, but we are going to do our little three-minute icebreaker. Try to get to know Ashley Squared a little bit better. <laughs> um, so, Ashley, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, you can give me the first thing that comes to mind. If there's a story behind it, feel free to tell it. But we got three minutes. You ready? Okay. Yep. All right. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, uh, sausage, turkey sausage, egg, spinach, omelet, and a protein waffle and coffee. Oh my gosh. That sounds good. I've just had mint tea. I'm slacking big time. You need a better breakfast. You I gotta, know. Yeah. It's bad. Um, what does your cell phone wallpaper look like? Oh my God. What is my cell one is just there's the the difference between the lock screen and then the regular screen, right? Mm-hmm. So I think one is just like that the whatever the default is is that ridiculous? It's just like I don't know whatever <laughs> came like with the, Apple, whatever opened. came with the Apple screen. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could choose any person from history to be your imaginary friend, who would you choose and why? Oh wow, that's a good one. Oh, my imaginary friend. 
I think that I would go. So, okay, I'm sorry. I need specifics. So imaginary friend means that they will, uh, no one else could see them, but I could talk to them. They're yes. there. Okay. Okay. They follow um, you around. Like you can tell them to leave. Like when you go shower, they're not right there, but you know, they'll be back when you get back to your room or whatever. Nobody else can see them. Does it have to be a famous person? No, no, no. Anybody, okay. anybody you want. I'm going to go with some ancestor. Some Ooh. just like maybe a hundred, 200 years ago ancestor. That's so crazy. Cause that would have been my answer for sure. It's just like yeah. an answer. I've never ancestor. I've never heard of mm-hmm. never seen a picture of, and they're just kind of always like, Oh, that's so cool. Yep. We're like the same person a little bit, <laughs> except with the cell phone <laughs> wallpaper. I definitely have sunflowers all over my phone. That's pretty. Okay. <laughs> I'll have um, to change it. <laughs> would you rather be the funniest or the smartest person in a room? Oh. All the time? Is this like permanently? Um, short or term. Just in general. Maybe like the rest of the year. <laughs> you know what? I think I would have a, a different me probably would have said smartest. But I'm just going to go with funniest because there's nothing like making another person laugh. I like yeah, that. I like that too. I like that. Um, if you could write a book that was mm. guaranteed to be a bestseller, like 20 million people are going to buy this book. It's going to fly off the shelves. What are you going to write about? My memoir. I'm definitely Ooh. writing some either short essay, memoir kind of thing, or just a full on memoir. Just a I book like that. about my life. Yep. I like that. Um, if you could take one thing out of your daily routine and swap it with something else, what would it be? Hmm. I would, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. Um, I would, I don't think I would. I mean, I like my daily routine. I think it fits me. Um, you know what? No, I would swap empty time with getting back into yoga again and and making sure that I'm doing that more consistently something Pilates something like that yeah I love that same same again (laughs) um okay popcorn or M&M's or both uh not M&M's I I hate M&M's so really yes M&M the texture of M&M's is atrocious I feel like (laughs) They should be taken off the market. Especially, <laughs> let me tell you what's criminal. The plain eminent people who just eat that, the like nothing in the middle, just chocolate yeah. and chalk. Like, <laughs> chocolate <laughs> and chalk. Yeah, they do have a little chalky, like Nestle taste to them. But I like the one filled with, with peanut butter. I can't do them all the time, though. They make okay. my teeth hurt. <laughs> I respect that. At least you have something in the middle, you know? Yeah, I yeah. can't do the, the naked M&M's. <laughs> All right, last one. Um, what's your favorite place of, out of all the places that you've traveled to? Probably Florence, Italy. Ooh, yeah. mm-hmm. how was that? Like, how what, how did that come about? I studied abroad in England mm. in my undergrad for one semester, and it was a goal of mine because it's like when you're in England, like so many countries are just right there. So I was like, I want to go to as many places as I could possibly go. And on the weekends, I would just do little, you know, travel excursions. So 
I think this might have been a longer time, but I had went to Pisa, Florence, Bologna. Um, I think that was it, like within a, a certain time frame. And Florence, I got to ride on this bus that was like a double decker, but it took me through like the Florence countryside. And it was like the most beautiful, sunny day. I don't think there was anyone else on the bus. It was just one of those experiences where you're like, I will never forget this. And even when I say Florence, there's an imagery that comes to mind that is exactly from that that time, which is is absolutely related to our topic today, memories. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. Maybe I'll add that to my list. Italy's on my list, but Florence wasn't but now it is okay Florence is great but Italy I will say for uh, black travelers Italy is a very interesting experience and I'll leave See, it at that that's why it's not at the top because you're not the first person uh that I've heard that from <laughs> and yeah. I would rather go somewhere where I know I'm not gonna have issues but it's okay yeah. maybe I'll spend a couple days there I don't know we'll see <laughs> I think a couple is, is fine. Anything more than that, you're like, get out. L- literally, just get out. <laughs> uh, get out the movie or like, get out, actually. <laughs> Maybe both. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so we are going to hop into our mind game segment. So basically, in the mind game segment, I pick a definition of a mental disorder or mental illness, and I read the definition, and all of our listeners get to guess what it is. And then at the end of the episode, they find out what it actually was. Okay. All right. Ashley, you can't guess because there's a there's a chance you probably know what it is. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'll stay out of this one. <laughs> For everybody that's listening, you can use Dr. Google if you want to. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, throw whatever you think the answer is into the little box below. If you're on Apple, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> talk to Apple. They still don't have that feature. <laughs> All right, so for today's Mind Games question, here we go. This disorder is a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others. Causes pro- it causes problems uh, functioning in everyday life. It also includes self-image issues, difficulty managing emotions and behavior, and a pattern of unstable relationships. With this particular disorder, there is an intense fear of abandonment or instability And you may have difficulty tolerating being alone. Yet inappropriate anger, impulsiveness, and frequent mood swings may push others away, even though you want to have loving and lasting relationships. This particular disorder usually begins by early adulthood. The condition seems to be worse in young adulthood and may gradually get better with age. Um, Many people with this disorder get better over time with treatment and can learn how to live satisfying lives. So that is the mind games question. Again, Ashley, don't give it away. (laughs) But for anybody that's listening, uh, throw in your answers. If you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple, I'm just a little emoji with the girl, their hands out. I I don't, I can't, you know, write it down, (laughs) but we'll come back at the end of the episode and I'll give you the answer. All right, let's hop into Let's hop into today's topic. So we're just going to jump straight in. Ashley, like I said, she's a therapist. And one of the main reasons I wanted to speak with her and wanted to get her on the show is because she uses EMDR um, when she's working with clients. And 
you may be thinking, what the hell is EMDR? So, Ashley, what is EMDR? Okay, let's talk about it. So, EMDR is a therapy model that is used to help people reprocess memories, essentially. So, it's really interesting because... EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, but um, you can actually use uh, sound, um, tapping, which we'll get a little bit into with uh, talking about whether or not you can do it in teletherapy and all of that. But EMDR uses something called bilateral stimulation. So what this means is that we're doing something that is stimulating two different parts, right? So if we do eye movement, we're going left to right, back and forth. And if you're doing physical or sound, it's just going in one ear, the other, um, or you're tapping, let's say, your legs. And the thing that we know about EMDR is that it helps you reprocess memories and deactivate responses. So, you know, when we think about what makes some memories tough, it, what is it, right? Like it's um, a physical sensation. It's a, um, a cringe. I often ask a lot of clients that when they're confused about what EMDR is, I'll say, you know, can you think of a memory that you've had where you get, you cringe? So like, if I asked you right now, can you think of something when you were younger, something happened, you said something embarrassing. And when you think of that memory, you go, eh. yes, for sure. Yeah. Probably a couple things, right? We all have mm -hmm. something. That's like, oh no. Yeah. So EMDR is a therapy model that helps us deactivate that. So the idea is that we want to go back, we want to reprocess things, and we want you to be able to not have that immediate response. Um, so yeah, it's an intervention that is somatic-based, right? It's bodily-based, and we're trying to deactivate sensations, responses to a really difficult memory. That's what EMDR is. Ooh. I that's this is so interesting to me because I'd heard of EMDR in the past and to be honest it like went over my head and I was like I'm much better with when somebody is sitting in front of me explaining it so I want to ask you I know you mentioned that EMDR is somatic based um can you talk a little bit about exactly what that that means and then how that relates to trauma Absolutely. So I want to say too that like um, I'm opening a water if anyone hears that. But... That's okay. <laughs> say hydrated. It's okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I want to say that you know when I decided to come on here, I was like, man, you know, whenever we talk about therapeutic models, I think we can use a lot of jargon. Like as a therapist, there is language that I use that like is going to be the most known, you know, from someone that's either in the mental health field or a therapist themselves. And I wanted to, to approach this in like the barest of ways, the ways that I describe this to clients. So when we say the word somatic, what we really just mean is the body, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so your question is how, repeat your question again. Yeah. So, I, so now that we kind of know like somatic just basically means like your body, some form of like touching the body or some form of like sensory interaction with the body. Is that right? Yeah. So for trauma, I know this EMDR is used in, to my knowledge, like you use it for trauma healing. So why, 
I guess my question is kind of like, how do the two relate? Like out of all the other therapeutic options out there, why is somatic so powerful when it comes to trauma healing? Like what, what's Absolutely. the connection, like the brain body connection? Sure. So let's talk a little bit about trauma. Um, so trauma is any experience that you have that essentially overwhelms your ability to cope, changes how you view the world, um, usually believe that you're in danger, something is threatened. And when we think about trauma, a lot of times we think about like the event itself in our culture when we talk about it. But the thing that you really want to think about is like the actual bodily experience of trauma. And a lot of times, even when we do that, we think of the mind. We think about like, oh my gosh, that thing happened. And this person probably thinks this way about it. But the thing that I like to describe to my clients is that, you know, when we experience the world, we experience it through the body. I don't think that we often understand that. So the example I give is that if you put your hand on a hot stove, are you thinking my hand is hot first or are you feeling the heat first? Mm, I think right. I'm thinking that it's hot first. Well, you have to actually experience the heat to even think that, right? Oh, okay. So we're experiencing it through the body. And, you know, the, the thing about the body is that when we think about like the, the brain, right? Um, I also like to describe to my clients, just like the brain model and all of that. But if we think of the part of our brain that is the most primal, that's the part that is really experiencing the world first, the body, the, the physical sensations. So when we experience trauma, where do we experience that first? We experience it in the body. And this is why, you know, people who are, you know, even when we are pre-verbal, right, we can actually experience trauma because you're experiencing it in the body. It's not because you think of it a certain way. It's because of the experience itself. So when we think about healing from trauma, you know, it, the previous idea is that we just kind of talk about it, right? So we talk about like what happened um, and why you may think of yourself a certain way or think of the world a certain way because of this experience. But my experience as a therapist is that um, it is really important to face that bodily part first. Because if we don't do that, a lot of times, you know, that's when people say, man, I've talked about this so many times. I get it. I understand why X, Y, Z. But for some reason, I still feel this way about it. For some reason, I still cringe. I still respond a certain way when I smell something. And it's because that trauma is in the body. It is beyond your cognitive processing. Does wow. that make sense? It does. So trauma is... And I think, is there a book called Trauma is Stored in the Body? So there's a lot of books about, uh, you know, the body and trauma. But the one that's really famous is The Body Keeps the Score. That's the and, one. Yeah, that's like a go-to that a lot of people will recommend. But there's so many more. Like, I really like Gabor Mate, too. He has some books about... Um, the like ADHD and like, you know, just this idea, I think his, his most recent book actually, which is the 
I forget the the title is something about being normal, but it's the idea that we have all these thoughts about what is normal, but mm. our society is abnormal. And we are actually having pretty quote unquote normal responses to a society that is abnormal. So for instance, when we think of trauma, there are a lot of people who feel like trauma is not a mental disorder. It's an injury. It, it's not something that just kind of manifests, you know, biopsychosocial, it's something that, you know, happened to you. But we can also talk about like epigenetics, genetics and uh, yeah. trauma and generational trauma too. But yeah. That's you know, so I- interesting. Like, and I know for anybody listening, um, Ashley has like, she's solely adding to my book collection. So <laughs> from our first initial conversation, I was like writing down names of books. So um, I feel like I'm just making a mental note that I need to have like some sort of library on the future podcast website. And I will probably come back to you for some advice as like what yeah. books to recommend, because you definitely have, um, it sounds like you're like super well-read and have lots of advice when it comes to different, different books and stuff to dive into for anybody that is curious about these things. Um I want to talk about a, a little bit about how you discovered EMDR and like, what was your first experience? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I shared that I have had personal EMDR experience um, from just trying to seek it out when I was a little bit younger. Um, and then obviously when we get trained for it, we actually try it in training. But my very first experience with EMDR was back in like 2011, 2012. And I sought out a therapist because I wanted to essentially deal with some traumatic things that happened to me that were coming up uh, post-graduation. And I remember hearing about EMDR and I thought, okay, I'll try this. I hated it. I thought it was awful. And I thought that it was hokey and it was like somebody just came up with it and it didn't work. I I couldn't (laughs) believe it. Um, I essentially went to someone who I believe wasn't trained as well as they could have been in it, which is definitely um, something that's unfortunate because I think people have that kind of experience and they never come back to like therapy or whatever. But yeah. um, And she was just kind of, uh, I don't know. She didn't do a good job at describing to me like what, what it was and what was going to happen. And uh, I think that she had self-disclosed to me that she had ADHD, which is, is fine. I actually have ADHD and um, talk about being like a neurodivergent therapist. And um, problem is that she, when I, I was doing the EMDR, I looked over to her and she was on Facebook. And I was like, <gasps> no, stop playing. No, she was on Facebook? It. Yes. During the session? Remember, yes, because EMDR is something that is so very client-based, which I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit. But um, she was on her, her computer and she was on Facebook and then typing something. I actually called her out on it. And, she, and that's when I found out she had ADHD because she was like, well, you know, I, you know, I have ADHD and I just have to keep busy and da, da, da. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know like, about that one. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so I had never went back. And then I convinced myself like uh, EMDR isn't for me. Yeah. Um, so then fast forward like a decade. And the pandemic happened and EMDR was kind of in my ear because, you know, I do 
um, specialize in trauma. So I would have clients who've tried it or other clinicians that were friends who were getting certified and all of that. Um, and then the, the pandemic hit and I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is something I want to get back into. Um, and then when I trained and I did it, I actually was able to clear something in my training and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is it. You were sold at that point. Yeah. Wow. I still can't believe old girls on Facebook during your session. That's wild. Don't believe it. (laughs) And didn't Um, apologize. It was more like a, well, you know, I got to be on here. It's like, nah. Oh, wow. Like it is what it is. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I want to talk. I know you mentioned that, um, that you have ADD or ADHD, ADHD. Um, and you consider yourself a neurodivergent therapist. And I think you might be the first uh, on the podcast that's ever like openly said that. So um, can you talk a little bit about how that maybe changes your view or the way that maybe you, you work with patients? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that in general, you know, if I was to give a little bit of a history of the, the kind of therapist I am, Um, you know, I think that I was trained and then years went by and I, you know, was concentrating in trauma, even though I didn't know I was. So, you know, when I graduated, I was a emergency mental health therapist. And then for six years, I worked as a drug and alcohol therapist to women. And that's just nothing but trauma. And, um, I started to really dismantle a lot of ideas of like a white supremacist approach to therapy. And I say all this to say that is why that I disclose, like we talk about self-disclosure and it's something that isn't really, um, you know, when you go to a grad school, they tell you that you shouldn't be self-disclosing unless it's absolutely necessary and that kind of thing. And I find that being honest about like who I am and my approach is really beneficial because one, there are other neurodivergent therapists. Um, and then two, it, it, kind of brings the the bridge a little shorter you know sometimes I think people just want to know bare minimum about you or like that you know that um their struggles isn't just like everything you know is from a book right like Mm -hmm. you've experienced things too so uh yeah I do identify as neurodivergent because I have ADHD and um I also have my own trauma from you know being younger and have processed that and all that um And then the other thing that I know I've talked to you about is that I recently had surgery and um, post-surgery, my mind just kind of works differently, memory and word recall and all of that. So these are all the things that are part of me in my personal life, but obviously they play a role in being a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that the way that um, any of my own like personal identities impact my therapy is that one, I'm really understanding of certain issues that people may have. Two, I think that um, especially for instance, when I have clients who are ADHD as well, uh, our interaction is smooth, even though it's not smooth, right? Like sometimes it's kind of funny. Um, But I think that just them knowing that and us being able to have that level of rapport kind of uh, builds that clinical relationship. And I think that there are some other things that, you know, I think about as far as like how I prepare, how I make sure that my own stuff doesn't get in the way of being a good therapist with my clients. So 
there's a lot of things. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it definitely does. I think that it's nice to hear that you tell your that that you tell your clients um, a little bit more about about themselves. I think especially especially being a black woman, like I haven't met very many black women that have just come out and say that they have ADHD and that that's something that they're that they're living with. Um, so I think to have a therapist say that, because sometimes, and that's for me as a patient, um, excuse me, sometimes it, it can feel like your therapist is like this omniscient person that is, has no flaws and they just like know everything. Yeah. And it kind of feels like, oh, like I'm, it kind of feels like you're coming in with all this like baggage and this person is just sitting like on this little judge judy throne like <laughs> let me figure out what you have so i think it, it kind of brings you i don't want to say like down to your patient's level but in a way it does it kind of makes you more relatable and i think for me i would feel less shame around whatever i'm bringing to the table if mm. you've just shared and it's not like you have to tell your whole life story to them but i think it does make you more human when you share a little bit about yourself yeah, and I think that's why I was saying too about this idea of like dismantling, um, you know, a lot of white supremacist ideas of what it means to be a good clinician, mm-hmm. and what you're talking about, like as far as being a human. That's also why I do it because, like, I am a human. I'm literally a human. I think that's one thing that I hope that a lot of clients in general, you know, people in therapy realize even during the pandemic. So it's like all these ideas of what it means to be a therapist. It's like remember your therapist was also going through the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? Like um, therapists have their own emotional lives and relationships and issues and whatever else. Um, The difference is that we're trained in a different way. We should be responding to our issues in the way that we talk about like to our clients, right? In a healthy manner, but we all fall short. We all have, you know, like we're human. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important for me to stress to clients because I think sometimes people enter therapy with this idea that, like you said, I'm this all-knowing person. And it's like, one, that's not true in the sense that I always tell my clients that you have all your healing inside of you. I am not someone who is an authority of like you, like you know you, you've known you your home life, right? I'm here as in some ways, a guide or to hold like a mirror up to your life to help you process and get through things. Um, So, you know, don't put me on a pedestal because I have no like reason to be there. Right. Um, And I think, you know, just this idea that like I'm human too. Right. So some -hmm. people enter counseling with this idea that they're going to heal and then they're going to become a healed person who then lives the rest of their life never having issues because that's also how they see their therapist, right? Like, oh, that person arrived. I'm just trying to get like that person. That's not reality. The reality is that like life is traumatic. (laughs) We all have things going on and hopefully you get to process the, the foundation of like your trauma that gets in the way of your life, learn some skills for how to deal with life. And then you're able to move on. But there is no arrival in the sense that, like, you're going to be perfect, never feel sadness or any, you know, unpleasant emotion and be a, you know, perfect angel for the rest of your life. Like, that doesn't, (laughs) 
It don't work that way. Yes, yes. What did what did Whitney Houston say? Impossible. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> it, it just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I no. I I appreciate that, and I want to just go back a little bit to. Um, I know we threw around the word neurodivergent, and I want to be conscious of like the fact that not everybody knows what neurodivergent means. So, can you just give us like a quick breakdown of like what does neurodivergent mean? Yeah, so if we just said it in a plain way, it's just this idea that, which, man, we could really get into this because there's a lot of ideas of like how we see neurotypicalness and being neurodivergent. But essentially, it means that your brain doesn't work in the way that a, a neurotypical brain works, right? So, for instance, if we talk about like ADHD, people's brains process differently. Um, you know, a lot of times people will think that some things are behavior-based, meaning like personality. Oh, that person talks too much. Oh, that person um, is inattentive or they're hyper or whatever else. And it's not a personality trait more than it's actually like your brain functions a certain way. It functions quote unquote differently than mm -hmm. a typical brain. Um, and then we also know like the autism spectrum and all of that is also a form of being neurodivergent. So yeah, it just means outside of what we would call the quote unquote norm. Thank you. I appreciate that. Cause I think sometimes there's a lot of like new words that get, get thrown around and people are kind of like, I don't know what that means. Even I, sometimes I think even when you read online, it does help to actually hear somebody explain it, especially somebody mm -hmm. that might be a part of that community kind of explain it. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, I would recommend, I know I, I'm always recommending books, but one book that I think is really great is Divergent Mind, which mm -hmm. talks about um, the ways that we see the brain. You know, even when we talk about like sensory processing disorders and all that kind of thing. And, you know, so I, I would recommend that for anyone who wants uh, introduction specifically about women in neurodiversity, because uh, we know that women are often neglected in being you know, diagnosed with certain disorders. So yes, Ashley, you might have to come back and talk to us about uh, <laughs> neurodivergence, neuro neurotypical brains, and yes, I might have to you know bring you back <laughs> for another episode. But um, let's get back into EMDR. So mm -hmm. um, I know you told us exactly what EMDR is. Now, what does an EMDR session actually look like? If what do I expect if I sign up? with you and I'm like, okay, I want to try this thing. I've got trauma that I've tried to heal and I feel like I'm not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. What, what should I expect? Yeah. So I always say that the first thing that we're doing is trying to, to, you know, think about your trauma and then think about what modality you want to use. Right. And so, you know, really thinking about how you feel like you define your own healing and then once you have decided like, okay, EMDR is what I want to do, you're going to find you an EMDR therapist. And when you reach out, you know, I'm sure there'll be an intake, all of that. And that person should be explaining to you again, how EMDR works and what's going to happen. So essentially when we do EMDR, EMDR is done in phases. So the first phase is just like information gathering and, you know, doing um, a, a history essentially. And then the next phase will be actually working on something we call resourcing. 
So resourcing is coping skills. You know, it's a fancy word for making sure that you have resources when there's going to be like emotional intensity. So you can actually go to them and, and use them. And resourcing will also include uh, talking about like when we end a session, how will we end, et cetera. And, and I also want to say too that um, the way that you actually get uh, certified at EMDR, which is like going to a training, every training is a little bit different. So I want to give that caveat that like I'm explaining my process, but you could go to an EMDR therapist and they may be a little bit different and it doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong. So I want to make sure I say that. Uh, so I'll say specifically for me, you know, again, that the next part is doing coping skills and talking about how we'll end the session. Um, and I really focus on the body when we talk about resourcing, right? Because again, if we're talking about bringing up this trauma, reactivating the body, when we calm down, what are we going to want to do? Calm the body. Mm -hmm. So for me, foundationally, I do breath work. I start with every client, no matter what, doing breath work um, and then finding different uh, meditations that do breath work or um, body awareness. So, you know, asking questions about your senses, that kind of thing, because we want to ground you and we want you to feel more calm in your body. And then after we know that you feel safe and all of that, I've described to you EMDR, um, and you want to move forward, we start the processing. So this is what people typically mean when they say like, okay, what is EMDR? It's, it's when the processing starts. So when we decide on EMDR, we would decide on which kind of bilateral stimulation you prefer. So we would do OG eye movement, right? But you could do that via telehealth uh, the only thing about that is sometimes when people are doing telehealth on like their phone, you can't really do eye movement because you have to have a screen that is long enough. Um, and you could do sound, which we absolutely could do in person or uh, over telehealth. There's also buzzers. So buzzers you would use in person, but they're actually, there's a organization that's trying to create buzzers that people can have at home, which would be great. So the buzzers uh, are bilaterally buzzing, and I do that in my office as well. There's physical tapping. So you could tap on your legs. You could tap on your chest. Um, yes. So, and so I just want to point out for anybody, like when she's saying bilateral, it's like opposite sides of the body, right? Yes. So yep. like opposite ears or opposite like shoulders yes. or like a buzzer in each hand, and you're going like right, left, right, left. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So even when you sound, you have to have headphones because the sound is going in each ear, right? Mm. So it's not just um, a noise, a sound, the touch. It's important for it to be bilateral. Yeah. And there are some options too. Like some clients prefer their um, therapist to tap. So that could be an option. You could tap your feet. There's so many options, really. Yeah. I was um, going to ask just because I, if there is somebody out there that may... Um, and I don't know what the right word is, but maybe they only have one arm or maybe they don't have hands or something like that. But, and I guess the solution for that would be to have your therapist help you in that like sensory. 
Piece. Yeah, that's how they actually discovered it worked because people, it was originally just eye movement and then people were like, well, wait a minute, you know, a, a blind person should be able to have access to have this kind of therapy. There has to be another way to to do bilateral stimulation. And yeah, that's when they were designed like, oh, there are other options. So there's quite a few options for people. Um, and I think everybody has their own preference. There's some people that hate some forms of it and like others. Um, and some people feel like they, they don't respond to some. So it's, sometimes it is trial and error. For me and my clients, I always run them through all the options, like we do it together. And then they're also able to change at any point if they want to. Okay. And then all of that would be like in one session, you would go through different like forms of bilateral stimulation. Yep. So typically that is done in that resourcing phase. So when we are talking about like coping skills and all of that, um, for me and my clients, I introduce them to bilateral stimulation and then we slowly tap. So um, the, the thing about bilateral stimulation is that if you do it quickly, it is activating. It helps process with something that we're doing, like, you know, going over a, a previous memory. But when we do it slowly, we can actually install um, a resource or like a, a coping skill in a very uh, pleasant way. So I don't know if you've ever heard of tapping in general. Like there are some. Yeah, like I follow the, I think it's like the tapping solution on Instagram, but it seems to be like just like maybe one sided. I don't know. Yeah. So tapping is a, a very calming thing in general that they know. Um, you know, can help just calm in the body essentially. And so when we think about tapping in a slow way bilaterally, like, you know, the description I gave you as far as like trauma, the brain, actually, I'm going to go back a little bit. Can I go back? Yeah, of course. So whenever I talk to my clients about trauma in general, I like to talk to them about the brain. And remember how I was telling you how we experience the world through our body first, right? So what I talk to them about is like our prefrontal cortex and our midbrain. And the idea is that when we are dealing with uh, trauma or, you know, like a trigger and, um, you know, we're activated, we're struggling, we're in our midbrain and, and our prefrontal cortex is shut down. So that prefrontal cortex is the part of us that, um, cares about values and cognitive processing, analyzing, can be future oriented. And our midbrain cares about like the basics, right? Like it cares about survival essentially. And when we experience the world, again, remember I said like that's the, the most primal part of our brain. And when we have memories that are painful that we get stuck in, the idea is that they're stuck in that midbrain. They're stuck in the, the primal part of us. And what we're trying to do essentially is reprocess and allow your prefrontal cortex to also be involved in, in that memory and for you to have understanding and know, you know, teach your body that you're safe now and that you don't have to have that reaction anymore. So when we talk about doing a slow tapping, the idea is that we're actually trying to install a resource, something that feels safe in that, that brain as well. So when we talk about like memories that are bad, we also know that we all, we have memories that are good too, right? 
So when we do bilateral stimulation that's slow, we join it with like a guided meditation, such as like a safe, calm place or safe, calm person, or there's something called the container exercise that we do where it's like we envision that we can put things in a container and put it away and come back to it. We're slow tapping with that because we're really trying to install that memory as something that you can go to as a resource that is calming and um, positive. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes, it definitely does. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. That that makes a lot of sense. And that's super interesting that it is a way to basically kind of manipulate your own brain for if, if I'm saying that correct, it sounds like there's different pieces of the brain that kind of deal with different pieces of life. And like you said, the midbrain being the survival aspect, that's the one that you can kind of tap into. I don't know. It just, it just sounds like, um, I think it's a lot different than anything we've ever talked about on this podcast. Um, but I find it super interesting that it's directly like the fact that you can use your own body or somebody can help you to heal yourself with your own, like with your hands or with your, I don't know. It's, it's really like empowering, I guess you would say to be able to have that power to, you know, use your own body and kind of direct your mind and and manipulate it so you can heal. You know, I think I, I get what you, you mean when you use the word manipulation. Sure. You know, one word that I want people to maybe think about is integration. Right. Mm. So when we think about trauma, it freezes us in time, right? It freezes you in that experience and the other parts of your body and brain that are like you now, right? Like Mm. time has passed, you've had different experiences, whatever. We want to integrate all that, right? Mm. So the idea with trauma is that when you get stuck in an experience, it's like no matter how many new experiences you have, your body is stuck on that. So if I gave you the example of, um, you know, let's say that a, a, a clown scared you, you know, mm-hmm. when you were younger and it was it was really traumatic for you and you never really got the chance to process it, right? And you get older and now every time you see clowns, you're completely scared. But maybe you read a book about clowns and you know that they're supposed to be fun. And maybe you even have a cousin that's a clown. And you're like, oh, my cousin is cool. You know, that's great. But for some reason, no matter how much you learn about it, you know that they're okay. You know that you're safe and you're capable of protecting yourself from a clown. When you see one, your body goes, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so what we want to do in any kind of trauma processing is get you and your body to learn, wait a minute, we're not stuck there anymore. We're not kid us anymore. We can actually respond differently. We can keep ourselves safe. You don't have to avoid fairs for the rest of your life because you're going to be afraid that you're going to see a clown, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the idea. Wow. That's super interesting. Um, maybe I need to do this with pigeons because I do not like pigeons. Hmm. Yeah. You know, this is a good point that you're bringing this up too, which is that EMDR isn't just used for trauma. There are people who take phobias through EMDR, anxiety through EMDR. It's just a different way of processing. So you can pretty much take any really unpleasant memory or situation through it. So maybe that would be a good idea to to do that. Yeah. 
maybe maybe it is you know i might need to do that because yeah. i won't tell you my reactions with pigeons but it's it used to be embarrassing but now I, I just don't care it doesn't bother me as much but i just i can't be around the pigeons they, they can't fly near me if i hear like like the little coo noise yeah it freaks me out it gives me it gives me that cringe feeling that you talked about earlier mm-hmm. i can't do it <laughs> Well, I'll certainly tell you what I would tell a client, which is like, because you're like, oh, it's not as embarrassing and this and that, but you seem like kind of guarded. And it's like, you know, when you have phobias and and traumas or whatever else, it's like, that's already so difficult. Try to remove like the beating yourself up about it or the shame associated with even having to struggle with it altogether, right? It's like, there are plenty of people who are afraid of birds and have phobias and something that you can work on, but it's just something that's a part of you that isn't, doesn't make you a bad person or weird, you know? Yeah. No, that, that's really, that's true. And I think that is outside of like pigeons and birds, but I think when it comes to trauma, there is that, that sense of shame that, that we can carry with us because Mm -hmm. of that trauma, especially if it was semi-public like maybe your family knows about it or maybe your friends or maybe it was something that was actually public and like in a workspace or outside somewhere um yeah I think like you said like taking the shame like that blanket of shame off of it is like part of yeah just understanding like it's it's not your fault but it's also not uh something that you have to be ashamed of Absolutely. And and I think that's why as a therapist, I always start with, like I said, psychoeducation and the mindfulness piece. That's the beginning of all my therapy with people, because I think if you know why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, then that itself helps dismantle that shame. So when I do like the, the brain model and we talk about, you know, the prefrontal cortex and the midbrain, that's a way for me to say, hey, you know, when you smell that smell or something happens and you freak out and you're mad at yourself and you say to yourself, well, why can't I just get over it? Or why do I have this issue? Well, I'm telling you why, right? Like, it's not because you chose it. It's not because you were like, you know what? This bad thing happened to me and I want to make sure it it, it interrupts every part of my life until I'm 80. You know, like you didn't decide that. It was your brain. And I, I think the other thing that I like to tell people is that remember that your brain is always trying to keep you safe. There is no function of your brain, even if it's painful, that isn't really about survival. So even when we think of pain, right? Like I gave you that example of putting your hand on a hot coal. It's not like for shits and giggles. Your your body wants you to go pain because if you couldn't feel pain and you put your hand on a hot hot coal, what would happen? Your yeah. body would burn up, right? Yeah. And when we think of, well, why is it that I can't let go of something that happened to me or I can't stop having nightmares or whatever else. When we think about how our brains work, the whole point is that we're building um, a sense of, I'm having a a brain fart now, ironically. That's okay. (laughs) I know you said you're kind of building um, building a sense of like, is it like, protection or comfort with your, so, the way your body reacts to pain and trauma? Association. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea is that we have all these memories be in associations because they build on each other. Right. Mm. So the reason why we 
um, have such strong reactions or memories is because your brain wants you to remember things so it can remember, you know, for instance, how to keep you safe. So for instance, let's say uh, we're talking about even food, right? So you are more likely to want high caloric food, like fat, salt, sugar, and stuff, because your brain knows that that's like that the peak of survival, right? It keeps you full. It's whatever. And you're going to remember where you can get that because your brain wants to keep your body alive and keep mm. you okay, right? So when you are hungry, you're not going to think of maybe, let's say, celery first, you might think, oh, McDonald's down the street. I remember exactly where it is. I remember the hours that they're open because your brain wants you to remember how to keep you alive in the best way possible. So when we have like these traumatic memories that we can't let go, in a way it's also doing that because it wants us to maybe avoid, right? Mm -hmm. So if I use that example of the clown and I say you had a bad uh, experience, your brain is going to go, yeah, we got to stay away from clowns. Right. Right. So when you go to the fair, you're not going to be able to just enjoy yourself because maybe where you saw that clown the first time was the fair. So your brain is going to go, remember around that corner? Oh, that person has a red wig on. Oh, that you know, because your brain wants to associate things with a clown to to stay away from it. Right. It it wants you to identify that. So that's how it works. So the reason why I like to tell people this is that a lot of times I think people are just really harsh with themselves. I'm I'm 25 now. Why can't I not just go to the fair? Why can't I get over this? Well, your brain's trying to keep you safe. Mm. Yeah. Our brain's trying to keep us safe and we're frustrated because in our mind we're like, well, it's an, a maybe it's an illogical phobia or maybe like the trauma, the thing that caused the trauma is no longer there, but our brain is still like, no, we don't know. Like we got to yeah. protect ourselves. Wow. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to talk a little bit about EMDR and maybe ugh, as far as somebody that maybe they're already doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CB, CBT therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they're already doing some other type of, of therapy. Can EMDR be used on its own or does it have to be used with like a form of talk therapy? How does that work? So EMDR is its own intervention. So okay. yeah, like there are plenty of therapists who are solely EMDR therapists and, um, you know, EMDR is its own thing. That being said, you remember when I talked about like that phase two, where we talk about coping and resources, that is usually when clinicians are using different kinds of modalities. So for instance, for me, I do DBT with people and still CBT um, and and throwing in even sometimes expressive arts work, right? And, um, you know, the the way that that works is that, you know, for instance, DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, focuses on skills. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about, well, how are we going to deal with a hard session today? And you're really activated and it's, it's something that maybe is going to be heavy for the day. Oh, okay. So remember our skills, remember the things that we talked about in DBT or remember when we were doing CBT and we talked about when you have this thought or you have this emotion, how we want to respond or how we want to check distorted thinking. So you could definitely use different interventions with EMDR and you probably are no matter what, but EMDR is its own therapy. Okay. 
no that's that's really good to know and um dbt sounds super interesting so maybe maybe we'll have to circle back to that another episode um because i would love to learn more about that but um i want to talk a little bit about emotional intensity it's something that we talked about on our call um Mm -hmm. and i want to talk about is is that something that is related like how does that come up in emdr therapy like how does it relate yeah so emdr is in a way really keeping you in the present and taking you to the past, right? So the idea is that we're bringing up this memory. We want your body to know that you're in a safe space, as safe as you know you can define it, and that you feel like um, you're going to be able to respond in a healthy way, right? But at the same time, we are going back to this memory. Mm-hmm. And usually people aren't in EMDR because of something that bothers them a little bit, right? So typically it is intense. But I give people this, the uh, two things. So one, typically you've, you've come to EMDR already because it's intense, right? Like usually you're struggling in ways that are intense and that's what even brought you to therapy anyway. Um, so, you know, usually that's related. And then the second thing I, I always give people an example of is I say, starting to do EMDR is go, like going through a tunnel, right? So if we go through a tunnel, it's dark, right? And we might get to a point where it's like, we don't see any light because we've gotten into the tunnel. So the light on the other end, the light on this end, you know, it's kind of far away and we're in some darkness and that's that emotional intensity. But the idea is that if we keep going, we're going to get to the light. And, um, you know, I also talk about this idea of pausing because sometimes people, you know, feel so emotionally intense. like, oh, I can't keep going. And I always respect that. But I do give them that analogy still and say it is like taking a break in the tunnel because sometimes, mm. you know, we've already went down that path. So stopping kind of pauses you in that pain more than you think. Right. Um, but I think it's so important when you find a therapist to find one that you have really good, like build really good rapport with. Because if you don't feel a sense of safety or that you can even say, hey, this is this is too intense right now, mm-hmm. or I don't, I don't think I want to continue with EMDR right now. Yeah. Right? Like you you have to have a, a person that you feel really safe with to to do EMDR with. Yeah. That's that's that that is um something that I think people should people should know and like feel free to to speak up during your sessions and like you said honor honor yourself but also and not but but and um try to try to find somebody that works with you and that you're really comfortable with because you do get into like some of the stickier stuff and some of the more uncomfortable stuff in therapy you want to be with somebody that you do trust enough and that you're not kind of like I don't want to say intimidated by it, but somebody that you don't necessarily have a good rapport with, you don't really know anything at all about them. And they're just kind of, like I said earlier, like this judge Judy kind of figure that you go and see, or that you do, you know, zoom calls with, and you feel like it's just like the random doctor that you see when your doctor isn't there. <laughs> that ain't it. You know, like if you got a judge Judy kind of therapist, you got to go. Cause that ain't, <laughs> you never really feel that way. Um, you know, 
therapy is such a very particular experience because this person you have a professional relationship with, right? But they know all of your business practically. you're, You're coming to them with such vulnerability and then you're trusting that they are knowledgeable and that they are someone that can help you get through what you're you're going through and that's why it's really important you know like I was saying to find the right therapist and then also your therapist should be doing really good work in those first couple phases that I talked about so even when we talk about like oh what if what if an EMDR session gets too too um intense you should actually have some kind of signal for, hey, I got to pause. Mm-hmm. And your therapist go, oh, okay, well, well, let's pause that. And let's either do some resourcing, check in on the intensity. Do we stop for the day? Um, you should have that ability to do that with your therapist. And I want to say, too, that a lot of times people will find someone and they'll go, oh, you know, that person, it didn't work out. I'm never returning to therapy again. Therapists mm-hmm. are no different than any other profession where it's like, if you go to a doctor and you don't like them, you don't stick with them for a decade, right? Like you go, okay, let me go to this other one. I don't care if you have to go to five therapy appointments to find the right one, to find the right one, because I think it could be really damaging if you don't. Yes. 100%. 100%. Well, I just have one more question for you before we wrap up. Um, What is your favorite part about being a therapist? My favorite part is helping people, you know? So I know that's just like, of course, that's the answer that, you know, one would expect to have. But, um, you know, I, as a a marginalized person, right, like multiply marginalized, and I know I mentioned, you know, having trauma when I was growing up, I didn't see Black queer neurodivergent therapist that was something I I mean wouldn't even been able to think that up you know so I think being able to to be someone who is not as common in this field is really really something I value and I cherish and um to the the point I made about like just helping people in general I think that you know my form of activism has been helping people get mentally well. That is what mm-hmm. I've always believed that, you know, racism and, and any kind of oppressive structure, the whole idea is like to keep you unwell, to keep you tired, to keep yes. you depressed. Yes. So when I help clients get out of that, like that, you can't put, I mean, that is just like, it's just a beautiful feeling to me and um I really value that and yeah I think that's that's my answer I love that I love that answer um and I want to give I I think this has been man I could I could probably listen to you talk all day um this has been a super informative episode conversation um I'm going to do more of a deep dive into all the books that you (laughs) that you have recommended to me but um, I do want to just like give you your flowers as far as being like deciding to take up space um, within this mental health world, mm-hmm. because I think um, having more people that come from marginalized, different marginalized communities or represent different marginalized communities is extremely important. Um, we already just don't take up a, um, a huge percentage of uh, space and mental health as far as like mental health professionals but 
I think the fact that you're here and you're doing the work and you are really passionate about it. Um, like, I just want to like bow down, give you your flowers because um, I don't, I don't know if we do that enough, especially for, for black women that are taking up these spaces when well, there's you. not enough of y'all. So I, uh, and mm-hmm. shout out to all the black women and black people in general that are entering these spaces. Um, but for anybody that is actually before that, you know, I keep forgetting the mind games answer. So we're going to go back, circle back to the so, mind games answer. <laughs> can I say one thing too? That yeah. That touched on, which is like, so a lot of times people will say that, you know, find a therapist is hard in general, who is a black woman or, you know, has an identity that you share. And so if you are looking for a therapist, specifically an EMDR therapist, um, you know, look on websites that are built around like either allyship or the identity itself. But the other thing is that a lot of people like EMDR because you don't necessarily have to tell your therapist all the details of your trauma. Um, mm. So I'll have some people say like they don't mind as much finding, let's say, like a white therapist that they know is a really good ally to do EMDR because they may not have to share certain things that they would only want to share with, let's say, a black therapist. So that is one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just a, a caveat I wanted to throw in there. No, I that I appreciate that because I think sometimes I know for me when I look for therapists, I was specifically looking for a black woman therapist. Um, but that is good to know that with this form of therapy, there is a little bit of flexibility there, um, especially if there may not be any black people or people of color in your area that are uh, certified in EMDR. Um, yeah. I want to circle back to our mind games question and we are going to give the answer again. If you're on Spotify, go ahead and drop your answer down below. Um, I will reread the definition for y'all really quickly. Um, So for today's mind games question, I won't go through the whole thing, Um, but this particular disorder, it's a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others causes problems functioning in everyday life. Include self-image issues, difficulty managing emotions and behavior, and a pattern of unstable relationships. I won't go through the whole thing, but the answer is borderline personality disorder. Um, I've been seeing this kind of come up a little bit more online, and I've been seeing it um, on shows and things like that. But I, it's something that I wanted to I wanted to introduce, even though we're not getting into it today, but I'll just go over a few of the symptoms that come along with borderline personality disorder. So some of the signs and symptoms can include an intense fear of abandonment, even going to extreme measures to avoid real or imagined separation or rejection, a pattern of unstable, intense relationships, such as idealizing someone one moment and suddenly believing the person doesn't care enough or is cruel. Having rapid changes in self-identity and self-images that include shifting goals and values, seeing yourself as bad or as if you don't exist at all, periods of stress-related paranoia and loss of contact with reality, uh, that could be anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours, Um, impulsive and risky behavior, such as gambling, reckless driving, unsafe sex, spending sprees, binge eating, or drug abuse, um, even sabotaging success by suddenly quitting a really good job or ending a positive uh, relationships. 
This could also include wide mood swings lasting a few hours to a few days that can include intense happiness, irritability, shame, or anxiety. Um, this is something I want to do an episode on at some point, but um, if you want to read more on uh, borderline personality disorder, I'll make sure that the link to some of these uh, resources that I've been using uh, for the mind game segment, those are all in the, in the descriptions if you want to dive a little bit deeper into them. I'm glad that you're talking about BPD as a very stigmatized disorder. So that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. I try to like find some, I try to find one at least every episode and, and throw it in here. And it's, I usually try to find ones that are really rare, but I was like, you know what? This is something that I know about, but I don't know a ton about. And yeah, yeah. but yeah, so- thank you. When you talk about that, I think you, I remember you said that you wanted to eventually have someone talk about DBT. DBT was created for people who have borderline personality disorder. Really? So I would pair those together and have a specialist come on and talk about that disorder and talk about um, DBT, which is usually the go-to for borderline personality disorder. Interesting. Okay. Timing is everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Ashley, I want you to let the people know where they can find you if they want to reach out and connect. Absolutely. So AshleyJFarish.com is my website. And um, I'm also on Instagram with that same name. Um, And also, I want to say that if you go to my website, there's a resource tab that I have for my clients. And I'll give you the password is one, two, three. And you're welcome to go on there. And I have a list of readings. I have some handouts. Um, I just have some resources on there that I think are beneficial, things to talk about coping skills and all of that. So if you want to dig in, um, go there. And also there's a little part on that page too that I have my clients read before they're getting started in EMDR. So if you really want to investigate like, okay, what is EMDR and get some links to some examples on YouTube and all of that go to my website and you'll find all of those links. Oh, I love that. Thank you for, for sharing the password uh, with this community. I'll make sure that um, all of the, uh, all of the things Ashley mentioned are going to be in the description. Um, I will be checking and diving into them for sure. Um, Y'all know I love to do my research and read more about all this stuff, but um, feel free if you guys are interested to learn more about EMDR um, all of the information will be there. If you guys like Ashley's amazing, I want to have her speak or I want to, um, interview her for maybe you have a podcast or maybe you are doing a paper for school or something like that. Please don't hesitate to reach out. She's awesome. She's like a wealth of knowledge. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for, for being on the pod today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This was really fun. And I know it's like impossible to share all the ins and outs. So I definitely encourage people to do their own research and to look into things and to um, take a hold of their healing, you know? Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you to everybody that has, uh, that has joined and listened today. I I appreciate y'all. I just want to thank you guys for, if you're new to the podcast and this is your first episode Welcome to the fam. If you are like a vet and you come here all the time and listen to podcasts, I just want to say I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being a part of this community um, and tuning in. Feel free to share. 
go ahead and follow us on uh, Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety Too. Same thing on TikTok at Black Girls Have Anxiety Too. And on Twitter, Anxious BLK Girls. That's Anxious Black Girls on Twitter. Um, and for now, I will see you next time. Everyone have a great morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it may be. And I'll see you next episode. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal.